You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For February 17th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. On the July 4th weekend of 2009, I found myself at the Rothbury Festival in Michigan, where I was participating on several think tank panel discussions on energy, climate change, and sustainability. A bill known as Waxman-Markey, after its sponsors, Representative Henry Waxman of California and Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, had just barely passed the House a week earlier by a vote of 219 to 212. The climate hawks on my panel sessions were riding high. After many long years of effort, America was finally on the cusp of having cap-and-trade legislation that would establish emissions caps through 2050 for greenhouse gases and institute a system for trading emissions allowances. We were finally going to take action on climate. I was coming from a different point of view, having published a book on peak oil and having experienced a brief moment of media attention for it the year before. I had also just seen oil prices go through a historic spasm, traveling from $60 a barrel up to $140, down to $33, and then back to $60 over the course of just two and a half years. Fracking was just barely getting going and had yet to become a significant source of oil or gas. Renewables were promising, but still nascent, and they still needed strong policy supports to overcome their price and political hurdles and grow up. On my panel sessions, I suggested that given the infantile state of renewable energy, that we're in a race for BTUs, not a race against CO2. And that given the resistance of the incumbent fossil fuel industry, not to mention its wealth, I thought that we'd be better off pursuing incentives and strong policies for renewable energy rather than policies that would raise the price of fossil fuels, especially oil. Although the rise and fall of oil prices had been a part of a broader wave of investment in commodities that was itself part of the larger market spasm known as the global financial crisis, it was easy to see that oil prices could bounce right back to over $100 a barrel and cause more economic damage, as they did 18 months later. In fact, I wasn't even convinced that the global economy could tolerate such elevated oil prices long enough to reach 450 parts per million of CO2. Given all the volatility and uncertainty about future oil supplies, I argued, why even risk the wrath of the oil industry by passing a tax on its products when we could just offer incentives for the renewable sources we want? I don't think my case went over very well. The climate hawks acted as if I had just said their new baby was ugly, or worse, suspected that I might be a secret advocate for the fossil fuel industry. I proceeded to write an article explaining why I thought it was better to specifically incentivize the energy sources we want than to penalize the energy sources we don't want. Electric utilities and oil and gas companies went on to spend more than half a billion dollars to weaken or defeat energy legislation. The following year, after a truly epic period of horse trading and attempts to appease Republicans who were backed by the fossil fuel industry, the bill died without a whimper as it became evident that there wasn't enough Republican support. 
Then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid never even brought the legislation to a vote on the floor. The fossil fuel industry had succeeded in killing the bill, and the taste of that defeat lingered on for another decade. No federal climate legislation was even attempted after that. What did happen is that a lot of mostly state-level policies were implemented that specifically targeted renewables and efficiency and other energy transition solutions, and they worked. Those solutions grew up, and now, a decade later, wind and solar are the cheapest way to build new power generation, and they are rapidly eating up market share on the grid, even as coal and increasingly natural gas gets pushed off of it. And now we have EVs, finally poised to displace oil burners over the next decade. So when Danny Cullenward, an energy economist and lawyer working on the design and implementation of scientifically grounded climate policy, sent me a copy of the new book that he had just published along with David Victor of UC San Diego, titled Making Climate Policy Work, it got my attention. And my interest only grew as I realized that they were not only explaining why previous attempts at pricing carbon, like the Waxman-Markey bill, had failed, but also, in a way, supporting the argument I had made way back in 2009. So I'm very pleased to have Danny on the show today to discuss this book, because although it's pretty wonktastic, I think it's a timely reminder about what kinds of policies work and what kinds don't, as we embark on a new era of action on climate change under the Biden administration, and the COP26 climate summit looms later in the year. In fact, it essentially outlines a recipe for effective climate policy. So I hope all the policy wonks out there will check this one out. Then in the news segment, we'll have a look at a new proposal for setting carbon prices. We'll note renewed ambition on climate in the European Union. We'll eulogize the only coal plant in the U.S. equipped with carbon capture technology. We'll update the outlook for coal renewables and nuclear power in the U.S. And we'll take a quick peek at what will be the world's largest solar and storage project. And now, our conversation with Danny Cullenward, recorded February 3rd, 2021. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Danny, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the chance to be here. Today, we're going to talk about a new book by you and your co-author, David Victor, titled Making Climate Policy Work. And I just wanted to note right off the bat that in the preface, you acknowledge the input of a number of people who are alumni of this show, including Mason Inman, Jonathan Kumi, Gernot Wagner, and Michael Ware. So our listeners may be familiar with some of the ideas we're going to discuss today, and you're obviously an appropriate company here. It's really nice to join folks. I've learned a lot from all the folks you mentioned, Mason, John, Garnot, Michael, all people who've taught me a great deal. So awesome. I'm glad to be in conversation. Great. So in your book, you argue that climate policy based on markets, especially carbon markets, has mostly been a failure because politics always seems to find a way to interfere in those markets. Now, that's a pretty bold statement to make since, as you point out, every major international agreement on climate change, the climate strategies of many countries, and the policy prescription of nearly all NGOs working on climate are all oriented around market-based strategies. So in your book, you show how, apart from the electrical power sector, we're really not making much progress against rising carbon emissions. And even in the electrical power sector, as we'll discuss in a bit, carbon markets were not really the main policy mechanisms that reduced emissions. Rather, it was due to market forces, not market-based policies, and to policies that explicitly tried to achieve a certain outcome, like phasing out coal plants and building wind and solar plants to replace them. So I want to start with the obvious first question, why have market-based policies failed? 
And that is the big question. And the intro you gave is exactly the motivation that David and I had in writing the book. We've been working in this field for a long time. And so much of the talk about what should be done and what could be done to make progress on the climate problem has operated at the level of particularly market-based climate policies. And by that, I want to distinguish We'll talk about both of these instruments together, but we can talk about cap and trade programs and emissions trading systems on the one hand and carbon taxes on the other hand. Most of the attention in the conversation and a lot of the agendas of many of the elite actors and NGOs in the space have focused on some combination of those two policy strategies. And the motivation for the book is we've been hearing that for years and years and years. And David and I have both been part of a lot of those conversations and studies and efforts along those lines. But when we actually start to work with policymakers or people in industry who are actually trying to make a difference on these issues, we see a very, very different outcome on the ground. And we wanted to set out a set of understandings and thinking that was meant to be structural about trying to explain that outcome and not simply argue ideologically about what works or what doesn't. And the fundamental reason market-based policies have fallen short, I wouldn't quite say they failed everywhere, but they fall short in most places, is politics. The problem with that answer is it's an answer a lot of people give, and they don't give a lot of structure or coherence behind their thinking. So what we tried to do in the book is lay out a clear idea of how the structural politics work, sector by sector, interest group by interest group, and looking at the different ways that companies and governments and the public respond to different efforts when you think about using market-based climate policies to push a climate agenda. And we're going to get into your theory of politics in a little bit, which I thought was really a very helpful contribution to the literature here. But what about all the virtues of markets that their proponents have extolled? I mean, we've been told for several decades now that market-based policies are cheaper in the long run because markets are efficient, that markets are inherently fairer because they don't try to quote-unquote pick winners, and that they can have a broader and deeper impact than policies targeted at specific narrower outcomes because they're a one-size-fits-all approach. So are those arguments wrong? It's not that I think they're wrong, and I want to be really clear about this. In the book, we take the perspective that the primary economic case for using market-based climate policies is sound. If you could achieve the theory of economic policy, that would be a good thing. And so it's not that we're saying, oh, no, 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 that doesn't work. If you had a carbon price of $200 a ton, nothing would happen. You wouldn't have economic efficiencies if you had one of these big prices applying quite broadly. Rather, our argument is that the conditions that are required to get there are structurally very difficult to achieve. And the exact features of market-based policies that make them attractive to proponents are often the political liabilities that make them very difficult to implement in practice and result in dysfunctional systems that break along these political lines. I'll give you a really simple example just to make this a little bit more coherent. The standard theory in market-based policies is that the broader the coverage of an instrument, the more emissions that are included, the more sectors that are subject to the carbon price, the more economically efficient and environmentally beneficial the program will be. And that's because the market's going to go out and figure out what's the cheapest way to get the job done. And the more places it has to search, the better chance that the market's going to find a cheap way to get something done. We don't criticize that logic. The problem is when you think about it from a political point of view, extending market-based policies over multiple sectors brings in new opponents and new interest groups who all act in various organized ways to subvert the influence of the program on the effect on the incumbents. So you see really significant organized political forces fighting back precisely as you try and expand the coverage of a program. And to make this concrete, I'll just give you two simple examples. You can think about the East Coast cap and trade program called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. It's just the electricity sector. 
You can think about California's cap-and-trade program. It covers about 75% of the state's emissions. Cap-and-trade covers electricity, industry, transportation, fuels. If you want to increase the policy ambition of either of those sectors, you want to dial up the stringency of that program, you're having a conversation about the future of the electricity sector in the East Coast states. If you want to do it in California, you're having a conversation about the future of industry, transportation, and electricity all at the same time. And every single one of those industries has an incentive to fight against those impacts and that higher ambition. So you get broader coverage, you get better economic efficiencies, you get more environmental leverage, you also create more political problems. So the more broad-based your policy approach, the more enemies you have. That's exactly right. You have to fight them all at once rather than one at a time. Well, then there's a lot to be said for specific policies. So let's explore those ideas a bit more by looking at some of the attempts to create carbon markets or carbon prices and see why they failed to fulfill their promise. So as you mentioned, several of them just now, but in the book, you you critique three major carbon markets. There's the European Union's Emissions Trading System, or EU ETS, which we actually discussed with Mark Lewis way back in episode 76. There's the Western Climate Initiative, or WCI, which links two carbon markets in California and Quebec. And then there's the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, sometimes called REGI, a mandatory market of CO2 allowances in which 11 U.S. states in the Northeast participate. So how do you evaluate the efficacy or the lack thereof of these three carbon markets? So we use these three markets in the book, and we draw on a number of other examples. Korea, the sort of forthcoming Chinese program that's, I guess, now officially launched, but has been sort of half implemented for many years now and other programs around the world. But these three markets are the ones that are sort of, I think, best studied and best known. And they're very, very different. They represent, I think, three very different extremes for the institutional and political conditions we see in climate policy. So the East Coast States market, Reggie, it's a program that sometimes people criticize for being maybe a little weak. When you look at the carbon prices in that system, it's typically been in the neighborhood of two to six, seven, eight dollars a ton. Now, there's just no serious argument that those carbon prices are fundamentally transforming electricity markets in the East Coast. The changes in fuel supply prices, the difference between coal and natural gas prices, the falling costs of renewable energy and energy efficiency are just much bigger drivers along with the state procurement policies that move the needle in those sectors. So it's really easy to criticize Reggie. But the flip side is that the program is incredibly transparently designed. It's very clear what it's set up to do, and it doesn't have a terribly big bite on emissions, but it's also very transparent about what it's trying to be, and it makes it really easy for states that range in terms of their climate ambitions from a place like Pennsylvania, which relies a lot on natural gas, and the oil and gas industry is very powerful in the state's overall political economy, to a state like New York, which is obviously pushing quite a bit harder on climate policy. That transparency allows that system to hold together, and it's pretty modest. And so as long as you have modest ambitions, it kind of looks pretty good from that perspective. The sort of most difficult of the three cases is the California market, the Western Climate Initiative market, which includes California and Quebec, and once included Ontario. Because this program applies to most of the emissions in those jurisdictions, and because it's the product of some major compromises with incumbent emitters in the oil and gas industry, it's stuck in low gear. And the prospects of trying to increase ambition in that program and raise prices meet a whirlwind of political opposition from a variety of stakeholders, including the oil and gas industry, including other industrial sources, as well as rising power costs. 
And it's played very much a backseat role in relation to the stronger policies you see in those jurisdictions. California very famously has a strong clean electricity policy, strong mobile source vehicle regulations, and other climate policies that push a lot harder. And we sort of think the market sits on top of all of that activity without doing terribly much. The last thing to say is maybe on the European Union example, the European Union has invested heavily in this market-based instrument, which is a little ironic from the history of these things. The EU was initially very opposed to market-based climate policies, but when the US withdrew, or I guess never signed on to the Kyoto Protocol, Europe took up the mantle of market-based policies. Make a long story short, and we can get into more of this, after many, many years, European policymakers pushed for serious reforms in that program. And that is right now, we think, the biggest success story in carbon pricing around the world is the European market. It's extraordinarily complex, and it's required many, many years of investments and capacity building exercises for the state policymaking apparatus at the EU level to be able to manage what is an extraordinarily complex program, but one that plausibly is pushing the emitters in its jurisdiction to change their behavior. Right now in the electricity sector, we can talk a little bit more about how sustainable that kind of ambition is as you try and make the industrial sector that's subject to that program cost competitive in a global economy. Yeah, that's a very thoughtful structural critique. I guess, you know, the casual observer might be just wanting to focus in on the price, right? So yeah. as you mentioned a moment ago, Reggie is currently pricing carbon at what, six, seven bucks a ton. I think anybody who follows this stuff knows that that number is absurdly low. You know, the social cost of carbon on the 3% discount schedule in the old EPA numbers was starting at, I think, around 45 or $50 a ton now. I think the EU ETS has sort of a similar range of pricing now for carbon. But as far as your point goes, the fact that the carbon price is so low in Reggie could be part of the reason why it engenders less opposition. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that Reggie primarily functions as a modest public goods charge, and the states collect a little bit of revenue, and they spend it on primarily clean electricity programs, whether that's renewable energy or energy efficiency. So it's a fairly modest system. And again, when you think about it from the standpoint of like a project developer, if you're trying to pencil out the numbers on a low carbon power investment in the eastern states, the Reggie carbon price is not going to be very high on the list of things you're thinking about in terms of your financing or your market risks. You're going to be thinking a lot more about, again, what's happening in natural gas. You're going to think a lot more about the value of renewable energy certificates to comply with state clean energy policies. But the carbon price is so low, it's, it's very much a second order effect. That doesn't mean it doesn't do anything. It helps, but it's very much in a supporting role. And that's, I think, one of the things we wanted to talk about in this book is people talk about these policies as the primary driver of change. And where we see them sustainably implemented, they're often playing much more of a secondary and support structure. That's a good thing, so long as you're clear about what that is. Right. The contrast I want to draw is the EU is actually pushing to much higher price levels into the the 30s right now. So it's significantly different. And we're at the point where the price level there is enough to start pushing coal out of the market. It's also getting plausibly high enough as they've increased the ambition of their program that industrial sectors are starting to think really carefully about what they're going to do. And the cost competitiveness concerns for internationally traded goods become a new source of political opposition and a set of problems that policymakers need to address. Yeah, indeed. In fact, when we did that interview with Mark Lewis back in episode 76 at that time, the emission allowances under the ETS were actually the best performing commodity <laughs> in the European markets at the time, which still kind of blows my mind. Well, anyway, so finding carbon markets inadequate to the task is 
kind of an inconvenient insight at a time when many public and corporate entities appear to be finally willing after decades of delay to make a commitment to become carbon neutral. So what's wrong with carbon offsets as a way to achieve carbon neutrality? So I think the biggest problem with carbon offsetting is it's helped us sort of evade the question of how to reduce emissions first and foremost. And I think what's so interesting right now is if you ask the question, what's going on with carbon offsets? What do they mean? How important is this? Are there problems? That question applies kind of most prominently these days to what corporations are doing to pledge neutrality, to signify their commitment to a climate policy agendas around the world people are stepping up. We also see, you know, you've got major emitters, you know, Europe, the UK, China, now even the United States pledging some sort of longer term net zero pathway. And there's got to be some sort of qualitative offsetting that goes on in that conversation. I think what's so interesting about this is most people don't recognize the extent to which the private market for offsets, which is where almost all the activity is right now, was born out of the compliance markets. These compliance offsetting regimes set up primarily in cap and trade programs to do two things. And the two things they were designed to do was keep costs down and satisfy certain political constituencies, both the people who receive the offset investments and the people who are hoping not to pay as much. And what we try to do in the book is review the global experience with these compliance programs. And in a word, it's been abysmal. They have been low quality almost every instance we've seen where people are making investments in activities that either aren't real or don't look like they're ever going to be real. And you end up with junk credits trading around and ultimately diluting the quality of these trading programs. So it's a huge problem. And as we look at the voluntary markets where a lot of the stuff is scaling up, it's all born out of these compliance market systems. And the reason things end up in low gear every time is because the constituency of buyers in these compliance markets, it's the incumbent emitters. It's the oil and gas firms. It's the power firms who are using conventional fossil fuels. They want an increased supply of compliance instruments in their program. They might say they care about quality, but what they really care about is volume and price. And as you push volume numbers up and price numbers down, you run into this headfirst problem of what we call knife edge incentives in offsets. The whole idea with an offset is that somebody is going to make a counterfactual claim. They're going to say, I was going to emit pollution, but I didn't because you paid me. And the act of you paying me caused me to change my behavior, to make a different investment, to do something different that avoided an emissions, and you're going to get credit for my behavior. Now, we never see whether or not that happens. We can never observe that counterfactual scenario. So it's a recipe for gaming to begin with. As you drive the price point down, which is the whole goal of a compliance offset program, you also make the likelihood that somebody's making a serious claim to changing their behavior less likely. So at five bucks a ton, it's highly unlikely I'm going to make some radical new investment in a low carbon technology. I might just claim a business as usual activity, take the profit and claim a credit. And time and time again, we see in these programs, those kinds of structural outcomes, and they're dictated by this overall political structure. That's where today's private industry is as well. And that's why a lot of the talk around net zero emissions in the long run is I worry getting off on the wrong foot. You also had another clever term of art for markets that appear to be doing something but aren't really. Potemkin markets. <laughs> Credit to my colleague, David. He's been running around saying that for a long time. And it, it, it was 
it was a complaint at first, and we realized it's a structural outcome. It's something that happens consistently, and it's this, it's this product of the fact that with these cap-and-trade programs in particular, you have jurisdictions. Everywhere that's got a carbon price also has strong regulations. You will not find a place where there's a significant carbon price and no significant regulatory policy on clean energy and climate. Because these two things happen together, you get these weird interaction effects. So if I have a law that says you must go to zero emissions in the power sector, it might require some expensive new investment and it might cost utility money. But from the standpoint of the carbon market, it's a zero cost supply of abatement. The utility has to go to zero, which reduces demand for allowances in the cap and trade program. So you get this really paradoxical effect, which is that the more policymakers push on regulations, which we think they want to do for these structural political reasons, it's easier to do. You don't have to fight everybody. You don't have to visibly raise costs. Time and time again, we see policymakers push on regulatory strategies. When you do that, you depress demand for allowances and you reduce the carbon price in a cap and trade or emissions trading program. And so where you see these comprehensive emissions trading programs, they sort of sit on top and they become this facade where everybody talks about them as the center of the action, but they're typically playing this secondary supporting structure. And it's a very, very different role than the fancy reports and international conferences would have us think. So Potemkin Markets is meant to sort of encapsulate all of that. It's not that they're evil. It's not that they're always wrong, but they're not as big as they seem. There's not a lot of action going on behind the curtain. And that's really important to understand if we're going to get the balance of efforts right going forward. And they're ineffectual, right? And there's like no tracking mechanism or reporting requirement that would actually demonstrate that. It's really hard to track the stuff. One of the things I do for part of my job is try and help create some metrics and track outcomes in the California program. And it is just mind-bendingly difficult to say things in these programs. The opacity is actually we think not an accident. It's one of the things we think is part of the design of these systems. The fact that they're opaque makes it sort of harder to tell what's going on, which is often to the benefit of many of the players in these systems. Right. So I want to be clear, when you can push these things to a high enough price point, they make a difference. And watch the European Union. They are using this instrument to make a difference. It's taken many, many years of overcoming a lot of the problems we describe in the book, but they are actually starting to get something done. So it's not that you always get stuck. It's that the challenge of reforming these programs and making them do more is much bigger than most people think. And it works only when you have an incredibly well-developed state capacity to manage complex financial markets and think very carefully about energy system transition dynamics. Yeah, and that's hard if the opacity is actually not a bug but a feature. All right, well, now I want to come to your main point, which is that politically-oriented policies have been much more effective than market-oriented ones in actually achieving some material reduction in carbon emissions in the power sector. As examples, you point to state renewable portfolio standards, subsidies to keep economically uncompetitive nuclear plants from retiring, and other regulatory and procurement strategies that are specifically designed to decarbonize grid power, like ones that aim to retire coal plants. And this discussion of market-based policies versus policies that are explicitly designed to achieve a certain outcome will, in fact, be familiar to our longtime listeners, as we've discussed those questions previously in our conversation about winning and losing the policy game with Leah Stokes in episode 121, and our trilogy of shows about policies to decarbonize the power sector in episodes 90, 97, and 105. So why don't you explain why politically-oriented policies are more effective than market-oriented policies? 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. A new approach to setting carbon prices was proposed in an article published in Nature Climate Change in August 2020. Rather than the conventional approach of trying to calculate the social cost of carbon by adding up the estimated damage caused by an additional ton of CO2 emissions, a bottom-up approach that is plagued with methodological complexities, the researchers inverted the problem and started by setting a net-zero CO2 emissions target, as informed by the best available science and economics, then calculating the price that CO2 would have to have in a policy strategy to achieve that target. It's just the kind of approach that I think Danny and David would advocate. As always, if you want to find this paper and all the other research resources that were consulted for this episode, log into our website and check out the show notes for this episode. Our complete show notes are only available on our website and are not accessible from podcast players. Item 2. Recognizing that global action on climate change is still falling short of what's required to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, on January 25th, the European Union called on all parties to put forward more ambitious targets in advance of the COP26 summit in Glasgow this November. It also calls for a global phase-out of unabated... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network.